This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and open with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4. Slowly but surely, we are making our way through the book of Hebrews. If you are visiting today, it is our normal habit to walk through books of the Bible. And we are in, I think, week 12 of our study through the book of Hebrews. And looking forward to this precious text of Scripture. The last three verses we'll be looking at at Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. As I read this text over and over again this week, asked the Lord to speak to me, I couldn't help but to think about the summer of 2013. I was asked to be the camp pastor at a large student camp in Texas. What that meant is that it was my responsibility every morning to preach to all of the students. In the afternoon, I would speak to the leaders and the volunteers that had come. And then at night, they would bring in a different guest speaker every night. And I would be there at that service and counsel after the service. I was just kind of the pastor for the week. One night, we came to the evening service. And there was an evangelist that was preaching on the simple command of Christ, take up your cross and follow me. A text I'd preached many times in my life, a text I knew well. Surprisingly, I felt something interesting come over me that I wasn't expecting. He, he preached on absolute surrender. Not only that which we do the moment we come to Christ, which we do. When we come to Christ, we say, Lord, we trust you. And in response to that trust, we choose to follow you. And we begin a life of following Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. But Paul said, I die daily. And so there is a continual surrender of our wills to the will of Jesus Christ. And he asked that in response, all of the students that were willing and ready would come and get on their knees and say, Lord, here I am, everything, my future, my past, all that I am, I trust you and I surrender everything to you. I trust you with my life, be the Lord of everything. As I watched students leave their seats and come to the front where they got on their knees, I thought to myself, I'm not sure I can do that right now. I didn't feel nervous or anxious. I just felt afraid. I was worried at what would happen if I did that. And again, I had done this plenty of times before. I was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting the Lord. But my life was good and my family was good and my marriage was good and my kids were doing good and I liked my church and I didn't want to leave and go someplace else and I just started thinking if I surrendered kind of afresh to the Lord, he's going to do something and I don't, I'm good. I don't want anything new to happen and I really felt afraid and so while everyone was getting on their knees and I came up and began to counsel students on what it means to surrender to Christ, I couldn't do it. Later that night, I went back to my room. I had a room by myself, and uh, I wrestled with God, uh, almost like never before, all night, just kind of thinking about this and wondering why I felt so afraid in this moment. And the next day, I got in the car, and I began to drive back home. And throughout the car ride, I was wrestling with the Lord, just feeling like I was unable in this moment to say, 
Lord, I trust you. I'm good. I, I, I know you're going to do what's right, and I trust you. And somewhere on that car ride, I remembered a verse. I didn't know the reference, but now I know that it's in 1 John 4, 18. But I remembered this little phrase, perfect love cast out fear. What I realized in that moment is that if Jesus loves me perfectly, perfectly, then I never had to be afraid to give myself fully to Jesus because everything he was going to do was going to be for my good. That he loved me like a father loves a child and he's not going to lead me in harm. And although it might cost something to follow Jesus, as we're told it will, it will be for my good. And really the question here was not whether I was willing to surrender, but the question was, do I actually believe that Jesus loves me? God taught me an important principle in that moment that I've thought about time and time again is that the commands of Jesus confront us. We are confronted with the strong commands of Jesus. But listen, it is the heart of Jesus that compels us. So we're confronted with a command of Jesus. Do this, follow me, take up your cross. But what compels us to come to Jesus is not just the command, it is the heart behind the command. And this is really how it's supposed to work. We're supposed to be drawn to Jesus as we see his heart. People often wonder, what was it about Jesus that made sinners and tax collectors and maybe even people that wouldn't normally come to the modern church want to be with Jesus and eat with him and get close to him? The answer is, there was something in his eyes. There was something in his heart. There was something about his spirit that drew lost people to himself. This is Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 that we talked about last week. Come to me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden. So we're confronted by a command. Come to me. It's a command. But then he says this, because I am gentle and lowly of heart. So it's one thing to hear the command and to mentally understand that Jesus commands I come to him. It's another thing to see his heart. That his heart is kind. And he himself, although God in the flesh, is accessible and he is longing for us to come to him because as we do, we find that following Jesus is not the hard part. Sin is the hard part. He is easy and his burden is not heavy. It is light. See, what confronts us is the command, but what compels us is the heart of Jesus Christ. Do you know how you end up being a joyless, lifeless, bound up Pharisee? Do you know how you end up being a condescending legalist? Is you focus on the commands of Jesus, but miss the heart of Jesus. That's how that happens. If you want to find a church that is overly legalistic and always condemning towards sinners and never loving and doesn't have a gracious and a kind and a merciful heart is because behind that church somewhere is someone that doesn't understand the heart of Jesus for sinners. They got the command, they just missed the heart. One of the things I love about Hebrews 4 is it combines both these strong truths and these strong commands with the heart of Jesus. And we need that because the reality is you will never really fall in love with Jesus. Listen to this. You will never really fall in love with Jesus unless you come to know his heart. 
Uh, you, you, may, you may believe him, you may follow what he says, you may do all the right things, but it's possible for you to follow the rules your entire life and never have a real love for Jesus. And if that's true, it's simply because you never got to know his heart because if you know his heart, you will fall in love with him. Hebrews 4 reminds us that behind all of these strong commands, there is a really incredible heart. There are four big commands in chapter 4 of Hebrews. We saw two of them last week. The first one was in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, let us fear. The next one was in verse 11, where it says, let us strive. And these two commands, let us fear and let us strive, come out of the illustration of chapter 3 and chapter 4 of the Exodus generation who knew the word of God, they heard the word of God over and over, they had been around the people of God, and yet they missed God. Why? Because they didn't believe. That's the last word of verse three. They did not enter because of unbelief. So what happened? Well, a common problem, even in the church today, they knew the answers, they heard the promises, but we know they didn't actually believe the promises because they failed to walk in the promises. It's one thing to say you believe in Jesus. It's another thing to walk by faith. True believers are those, Hebrews 10 and 11, who walk by faith. They hear the promises and evidence of the fact that they trust in the promises is that they walk in them. So Hebrews 4 at the beginning says this, listen, be afraid that you might be around the people of God. You might have heard the word of God. You might know the truths of God, but you don't have saving faith because you've never stepped out and trusted the Lord with your life. So it says, then, then strive, strive to stay close to him that you wouldn't fall by the same sort of disobedience. It is this call to daily take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. It's simply saying, make a choice, trust and follow Jesus. These commands are saying that it's possible to miss the rest and the goodness, the eternity that God has for you. So trust and follow him. And then it ends with these familiar words. Look at verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There is a heaviness at the end of that text. You will all, all of us will stand before God. And on that day, you're going to have an account for one thing. How you responded to the word of God when God spoke to you through his word. That's it. I mean, that's chapter three and four. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, his voice, your heart. We make Christianity so complicated. Let me tell you how simple it is. You got God's word, your heart, and your response. That's it. We think so much about the past decision we made and the future eternity waiting for us when in reality the New Testament talks about our Christianity as a daily decision to trust and follow Jesus. And so what matters is what are you gonna do with God's word as it speaks? And so... We have a bit of heaviness at the end of that passage from last week. Then you go into our text for today with two more commands. The first one is in verse 14. Look at it. It says, let 
us hold fast. Do you see that at the end of verse 14? A command, let us hold fast. The second command is in verse 16, let us draw near. So true, strong exhortations that confront us, they matter because eternity hangs on them. You gotta stay near and stay close, draw near to the throne, so today hangs on them. Your ability to make it through today is holding on to Jesus and drawing near to his throne. So these are big commands and they confront us, okay? Stay close to Jesus, draw near, hold fast. But right in the middle of those two commands, and I kind of want you to view it this way, so big command right here, let us hold fast. Big command right here, let us draw near. And right in between them is the heart of Jesus Christ. It is as if the author of Hebrews says, listen, you've got to obey these commands, but let me tell you the motive for doing it. Let me tell you what is gonna draw you into obedience Not just your willingness to do whatever God says, but because you have seen the heart of Jesus and there's nothing you want to do more than draw near to him. I'm so thankful that in the heaviness of this study, which I think we might have felt over the last 12 weeks, we come to a little verse right here at the end of chapter four and it reminds us that behind all of these commands is a really precious and tender And so I want to read for us verses 14 through 16, and I want you to notice some things. Notice the commands, notice the heart of Jesus, and then notice the connection between those two. Because you're going to have words like since, and then, and for, and let us then, which show us the connection between the heart of Jesus and the commands of Jesus, what confronts us and what compels us. If you're there, say amen. It says since then. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then... With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Two strong commands held together by the picture of the heart of Jesus. Everything rooted in the heart of Jesus, everything that is compelling you to come and to be obedient this morning is a recognition of his heart for you. That's what's gonna draw you in this morning to obedience And it begins in verse 14 with this really glorious truth. We have a great high priest. That's a great phrase. We have a great high priest. Now, this is really the introduction of what's going to be a major theme uh, in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. We're going to be talking a lot about the high priest. We'll talk about it more when we look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. This is a bit of challenge for us because we're not really familiar with this. We have not grown up with a high priest. And the sad reality is, I know not you because you would never do that, but a lot of people have skipped the Old Testament. And when you skip the Old Testament, you don't understand the New Testament. And so here's a letter written to a bunch of people who knew the Old Testament. And because they knew the Old Testament, he didn't have to spend 20 minutes explaining it because they knew it which should be the reality for all of us. 
And so they understood what the high priest was and they knew that God loves people. He always has, he's got a heart for people and he wants a relationship with them, but he can't because sin keeps people away from God. And so God has created this high priest who is a mediator on behalf of men. He works to bring them to God and he offers sacrifices for them and he prays for them all that we might come near to him. And so look at what it says. I just want to read briefly five, one through three. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. What's his job? To act on behalf of men. So it's because God loves us in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant. And that's not somebody else. That's you. That's me. Okay. We're the ignorant and wayward. Since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So God appointed Aaron as a high priest, the probably most famous high priest of the Old Testament. And he appointed them on behalf of men to work and bring men to God. And he did this through the Day of Atonement, this annual sacrifice for sins where Aaron would sacrifice a sacrifice for his own sin and the sins of the people. And he would do it again the next year and the next year and the next year. But this passage says in verse 14, we have something better than that. We have a great high priest. Great because Jesus did not offer a sacrifice for sin. Jesus was the sacrifice for sin. So Jesus shows up and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. So they knew, because they're understanding of the Old Testament, there was always a lamb that was sacrificed to take away sins. John the Baptist says, there he is. That is the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And through his death, he would make a way by the shedding of his own blood that the wrath of God might be appeased, that all of our sins and the punishment for them might be placed upon Jesus Christ so that the greatest pain of Jesus's death was not physical suffering, but the fact that in that moment he became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5, the father turned his face away from the son, and in one moment all of the weight and all of the guilt and all of the baggage you feel for your sin, all of that from all of our sins was placed upon Jesus, and he paid for it. Deserves an amen. And then all of the righteousness that he earned, he gave to us. And so he's a little bit better than Aaron. He's a greater high priest. And then through his resurrection, he defeated sin and death, showing that not only our old life is paid for, but we get a new life. And then he ascended. See where it says passed through the heavens? He ascended and he sat down at the right hand of the Father where he is right now ruling and reigning over all things. He was declared son of God, the one who receives all the inheritance as the firstborn son. And we get in on all of that. We talked about that from chapter one and two. And so he is this exalted king of kings and Lord of lords seated on the throne right now mediating for us. He is the resurrected son of God. Because of that, he is the final high priest. He is the better high priest. He is the ultimate high priest. And the only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ. This is why 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is, listen, one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. 
Listen to me, everything your heart longs for is found in a relationship with God. You were created for him, you exist for him, you will never find life outside of him. There is nothing good in this life outside from God. Everything else will disappoint you, everything else. I mean, sin makes everything worse and more complicated, amen? Everything, you walk outside of the way of God. If there's anything I want my kids to understand early in their life, it's this is that trust that God has the better way and obedience is better. Because sin just brings a lot more baggage and junk that takes years to get over. So just trust that God's way is the better way. Everything good comes from God and the only way you can get in on it is Jesus Christ. You come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, you trust him, you follow him, he brings you to the Father from whom you receive every good thing. So there's this like massive truth. We have this high priest, he's high, he's exalted, he's glorious, and he is the one that brings you to the Father from whom, listen, moment by moment, day by day, you get everything your heart longs for. So it seems like a logical response to that would be this command. So, Hold fast to your confession. Why, why would you go back to your old life? You say, what's our confession? Well, the confession is this. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And so everybody in the church, it seems, has made a confession. We don't know if it's authentic or not. I, I don't know if your confession is a real one or not. A lot of people confess something they don't believe. But he says to the church, you made a confession that you're trusting Jesus. He's your Lord and Savior. So hold on to that. Don't go back to the old life. Don't, chapter 2, drift away. Don't, chapter 3, stop considering it Jesus. Don't, chapter 4, fall to unbelief. Now hold fast that confession that Jesus is Lord. He is better. There is nothing better. Trust and follow Jesus. Why? Because he's the only way to find the life that God intended for you to have. So there's just this like logical principle here that if Jesus is who he says he is, why in the world would you go to anything else but Jesus? And that's enough, like that, that's enough. But I'm not concluding the sermon because we have verse 15 that gives us this, this greater reason, not just because logically it makes sense, which it does, for do you see that, how verse 15 starts? For, why, why does this matter? Why should you do this? Why should you make Jesus your constant companion? For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So you kind of get the sense that, that those hearing this might have stopped and said, well, I know Jesus is better because he died and rose and ascended in his seat at the right hand. But the old high priest, we liked him because he understood us. He was one of us. He was just a guy. And he was appointed by God and he had his own sins. And so he had to sacrifice. And we just kind of got this feeling that we could trust him because he understood it. But now this new high priest is seated up on a throne and he's high and exalted and he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And so right as they were thinking that, the author of Hebrews says this, yes, yes. Picture in your mind this glorious throne where Jesus is seated, as we just sang, he is king of kings, he is lord of lords, which gives us the confidence that he is in control of all things. 
But as we see him high and lifted up and exalted, let us also know that he is near and concerned and aware and caring. He says he is able, look at it, to sympathize with our weaknesses. That word sympathize, just circle that about 30 times. Sympathize is a compound Greek word of two words which, which are with and suffer. So to sympathize means that someone is with you in your suffering. That's what it really means to sympathize with someone. You enter in. And so what it's saying is what Jesus does is he sympathizes. He enters in to our suffering. He's with us in our suffering. Andrew and I were talking about this last night. We actually began to talk about uh, a family who's suffering and, and just being reminded of the pain uh, of that suffering, not only for that individual, but for the family. And Andrea made this comment. She said, you know, a mother can only be as happy as her saddest child. Isn't that, isn't that true? Man, it's so hard to just be good when one of your children is suffering. There's just no, nothing, there's nothing like that. What this text wants us to understand is that Jesus feels this. He has come to bring many sons to glory. He feels the weight of your pain and of your suffering. And yes, he is in heaven and he is high and exalted. He's king of kings and lord of lords, but he feels the weight of all of your pain and suffering. He has a love for you that is so deep that his heart breaks when yours breaks. And what the author of Hebrews does that's so important for us is he takes us by the hand and he leads us to the throne and we're in awe of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And then he says, listen, but come closer because I want you to not only see this with your eyes, I want you to know this with your heart that the one who is on that throne feels everything you feel. Every pain, every weight, every temptation, he knows it all. Because, look at what it says, in every respect, this is unbelievable, in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. Without sin, yes. Tempted nonetheless, absolutely. The fact that he did not sin does not make his temptation any less. He faced the devil one-on-one -on -one in his temptation. In every way, he was, listen, Jesus was embarrassed. He was shamed. He was misunderstood. He was falsely accused. He was rejected. He was lonely. He was tortured. He was killed. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by friends. He knows what it's like to be hurt. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. All of those things he knows. And because he knows those things, when you go through those things, he understands them and he feels them got to know something about the heart of God, he feels so deeply for every pain you feel. I really believe that maybe one of the greatest lies of the enemy is when he tells you that no one understands. When he tells you that you're all alone and no one else gets it. I was talking to a pastor friend this week and he's really suffering with some significant things and he was, we're close and he was kind of complaining to me that 
no one in his family understands his suffering and they're just not sympathetic towards him. And I said, well, welcome to being a dad. Like that's normal, right? Nobody's stopping their lives to feel sorry for you. This is marriage, right? This is just normally how it happens. I said, listen, the, the comfort is not in the fact that every time you walk in the house, everybody stops and wants to know how you're doing. The comfort is this, is that when it feels like no one else cares, there is a Lord who is seated on the throne who feels every single bit of it. There is nothing you are feeling that he does not feel with you. Looking at the news this week, I don't do that very often, to be honest with you. But I noticed that in Yemen, which has had years of civil unrest, it said that because of all the lack of infrastructure and the, all of the unrest that's been there for years, they believe that 400,000 children in Yemen will die of malnutrition this year. 400,000 children will die in Yemen. I met with a friend of mine who is Indian, pastor in India. He was here. We had coffee together on Wednesday evening. And I said, man, what's going on there with COVID? He said, well, they're saying 4,000 a day, but they don't know the real numbers because what happens is if you have a family member that dies of COVID, they take the entire family and quarantine them, not at home, but they remove them from the place they live and quarantine them. And many are even dying in that quarantine. So no one wants anybody to know that they have family members dying. So they just dispose of the bodies and don't tell anybody. Tens of thousands die. Now I was confronted with my lack of Christ-likeness when I noticed my ability to read those stories and in about 30 seconds move over to see what's happening in the golf tournament today. Now I don't, that may just be on me. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you stop and weep. But it's really sad, my ability to do that. Let me just say something. Jesus can't do that. He doesn't do that. Like he doesn't just know you're suffering in pain and then scroll through to something else. He feels it personally. We sang a song this morning that says he knows your name. Do you know this? This is very personal to him. This is not some abstract. I know my people out there are suffering. Know every pain you feel, what you think no one else understands, he knows. And the point of Hebrews 4 is to remind us that on that throne is a God who feels everything and it breaks his heart just like it breaks yours. So verse 16, with all of that in mind, says, well, then... Let us then, in response to that, all of this is connected. Well, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let me tell you why this idea of confidence is so important. Because listen, one of the things the devil is going to say to you all the time is no one understands, no one cares. And then a kind of a condemnation is going to come into you in which you're going to think, well, I've done so much. There's so much bad in my life. There's so much sin. And the enemy wants you to put your head down and feel like you can't get close to Jesus. Anyone ever felt that? Like I'm not worthy to get close to Jesus when the irony is the only solution to that shame and guilt is to get close to Jesus. But at the end, he will remind you of how terrible your life has been 
and all the things you've done and keep you from Jesus when the command here is that based upon the fact that he is this high and exalted and great high priest and you are incredibly needy and he understands everything you're going through, you should with confidence go near to him. I think about the, the constant command from the Psalms where it tells the believers to lift up their heads. Uh, the psalmist says that the Lord is the lifter of our head. What does that mean? Well, I love that visual because we tend to be like this, right? And we just uh, it can't go near Jesus. And, and it's like the Lord puts his hand under your chin in this very tender moment and he just lifts your chin up and he says, look at me, look at me. I died so you could come near me. And I took care of all of that. I did that, I took care of it. And for you not to come near is to act like I didn't pay the price that had to be paid in order to get you near. I did that, look at, look at me in the eyes. And when you look at him in the eyes, all of a sudden you notice something you didn't expect. You can see in his eyes the tenderness. You can see the love, you can see the, the absolute attention he's giving to you. And he's saying, just come near. Don't go anywhere else. And where you're going near, look at this. This is a phrase worth underlining. You're going to the throne of grace. The place in which you find there every single thing that you need. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, circle the word mercy and grace, okay? I, I'm gonna, this is simplistic, but I think it'll help. Mercy really means here the idea of forgiveness for past failures. Grace means the help for current struggles. So when you come near to Jesus, here's what you get. You get a reminder that the past has been paid for through Jesus and you get the current help that you need. Which are those are the two things you need every day. You need to be reminded that your sins have been paid for and you're right with God because of Jesus. And you also need to be reminded that everything you need today, he has for you. So when you get near, you find mercy and grace. And look at the last phrase, to help in time of need. I read one commentator who said that last phrase should be translated, what you get when you come to the throne of grace is real-time help. I like that. What do you get? You get real-time help. You don't get to put on hold. You, know, you get, you get real-time, in-the-moment help when you come near to the throne of grace, but you must draw near. Do you see how these commands flow from his heart? I just want you to get this, that all of these commands flow from a God who wants what's best for you and he loves you and he feels for you. So he's saying, listen, don't run anywhere else but to Jesus because I've got everything, everything I've got. So come to me. And then he says this, I know it's hard and I know you're struggling and I know there's temptation and I know there's pain and I want to be in that with you. I want to help you with that. So come near. Every single command flows out of a God who longs for you to have everything that he has. It all flows out of his desire for your good. So we see his ability to help you, his desire to help you, his ability to give you everything your heart longs for and his desire to give you everything your heart longs for. And out of those two things, this command comes that so just get near to Jesus. Every moment, every day, draw near to him. Come to his throne of grace with confidence. I think about Psalm 16, 8, which says this, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I cannot be shaken. That's the command. Be continually near Jesus. Because he made a promise. 
He's gonna be there and he's got what you need and faith is believing that promise and going near. So he said that the Christian life looks like this. God speaks, you hear, you respond. And as you do, you make progress, okay? So what God is saying today is this. He has good for you. He has help for you. He understands you. So stay close and draw near. And the only question this morning is this. Are you gonna do it? Are you going to keep going someplace else or are you going to keep going to Jesus? Are you going to draw near to something else or are you going to draw near to Jesus? He's saying, do you not see my heart and how much I love you and how much I long to be engaged and a part of your life? Just come near to me. But that's where you have to step in and say, I'm going to choose to walk by faith and I'm going to keep Jesus close and constantly go near, believing by faith that I find there everything I need. Let me tell you the rest of the story. So I get in the car and I'm confronted with this uh, idea that perfect love casts out fear. And I just have this moment. I'll never forget it. I say, Lord, okay, I trust you. I trust your love. I trust that your heart is good. And I want to give myself fully to you afresh, whatever that means. I go home the next day. Andrew and I go to the doctor and find out she has stage four cancer. So I have to process this. And, and, and my first way to process this was C. Like I knew that if I surrendered to the Lord, something terrible was gonna happen. That was the way I thought about this. But that's not what was happening. Here's what was happening. The Lord knew in order for us and our family to be who God wants us to be, that we needed this situation. And so he put it in our lives. And he wasn't bringing me to that moment a day earlier to say, look what happens when you surrender. He was bringing me to that moment because he knew that before we went through that, I needed to be reminded just how much he loved me. That was it. Like I I needed in that moment not to be confronted with commands. You know what I needed? I needed the heart of Jesus. I just needed to know in the midst of that, Josh, just yesterday, I reminded you that I really love you. And he really loves you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.